1: On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
0: That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today.
2: Song Facts Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. We've been talking about it all year so far, and we are very appreciative to BetterHelp for sponsoring this show But it isn't something that I take lightly. Therapy, as you know by now, if you've been listening, has been in and out of my life. And I look at it as something that we all need to lean on every once in a while. We all get sick. We have physical ailments and we have mental ailments. And there is absolutely no shame in getting those checked out and looked at by a professional. Because without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. And the good news is, and take it from me, guys, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It is whatever you want it to be. You get out of it, what you put into it. Maybe you're not feeling motivated. You just like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure at work, just not dealing well with stress. All these things can lead to needing to go and check in on some therapy. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and now even live chat sessions with your therapist. So if you don't want to see anyone on camera, you don't have to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start chatting with someone in under 48 hours. And now a special offer to Songfacts podcast listeners. Yes, you can get ten percent off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com/songfacts. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com/songfacts. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this show. Songfacts, get your songfacts right here. Get your songfacts. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and I appreciate you being here listening. If you want to take a couple minutes and go and leave us a fantastic five-star review, whether that's on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you are listening, we will truly appreciate that. And as always, thank you so much to the Pantheon Podcast Network. Just a great resource for all things music in the podcast world. Today on the show, we have Arthur Lizzie, who has penned a new book coming out November 15th called Prince on Prince, Interviews and Encounters. Yes, this is our Prince episode, and I'm so excited about it. Prince is one of those artists that I have loved as long as I can remember, but never truly learned much about his story. Through Arthur's book, I have discovered why Prince's relationship with the press had been on again off again at best and he truly has done an amazing job at keeping the mystique around his name. I just love the way this book reads with the chronological interviews that give us a glimpse of where the artist was at at particular times in his life. We go over a few tunes of course and I even learned about a bit of a feud Prince had with the Foo Fighters. Stay tuned for all of that and more with Dr.
1: Arthur Lizzie.
2: Arthur Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on to the Song Facts Podcast. I've just been since I, I was finally able to get started on your book uh late last week and I've just been absolutely devouring it. I'm I I think I really like the way that it it comes in bite-sized pieces and you get these little stories, and then you kinda you kind of set up the next one and then it goes into it. And I don't know why, it just seems to like fit the way that I like to read. Um but it it's it's really well done, and I think these interviews are so fascinating because I really I'm from I grew up outside of Minneapolis, and like I know of Prince obviously I love his music, but I just never really took the time to learn that much about him. Um, you've written some books like this about some other artists. I know for sure Neil Young. Um, I'm wondering what makes Prince a unique subject. Well, I, I think he was,
3: uh, he, he, he was unique. I mean, he's one of those few people who could, uh, who could do it all. He could, uh, he, he wrote and played multiple instruments. He, He wrote his own songs, played multiple instruments, uh, sang, uh, was a producer, uh, you know, ran his own company, um, he he just did did everything i mean i consider him um i consider him a musical genius
2: so yeah so that's uh that's really why a prodigy by by any means i mean that's one of the things that really stuck out to me is that he at, at what was it 17 18 19 when he got yep. that first record deal just was being sought after by all those companies based on that demo that he recorded but absolutely insisted i produce i don't think he even wanted any engineers in there because there's one of those interviews that he talks about like nope they they ruin things for me they're too technical i just need to go in there and just let my artistic self flare um really unique thing to be able to get that on your first signing
3: yeah yeah i mean he from uh from early on he was uh he, he was doing everything when he was in In school and up through high school he did he did play out live and had band members but he was interested in uh in uh in controlling everything from from early on um and i i think one of the interesting things is he he did all that and he was able to get that control with his first album um but i he he never really appeared to be a prima donna because he could he, he you know he he backed it up he what he wasn't out there strutting around he he knew what he wanted um and and he was able to uh to to, to, to get it done i I don't think he came off as uh seeming uh uh egotistical or uh... a devo
2: <laughs> not so much a diva but a devo
3: right a devo, <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> um no that I found that to be fascinating I mean the fact that like on that first album he pretty much did every instrument himself I think one of the interviews recounts he said someone kept track and it was around 30 some different instruments that he played throughout that recording um I want to kind of touch base a little bit because essentially what we have is an account of someone's professional life and throughout those these interviews and stuff you have a, he, the artist himself is kind of looking back. And th- so it kind of turns into a biography of sorts, but not a traditional biography. So I, I forgot to mention this at the top. The book is Prince on Prince, Interviews and Encounters, and, it, and it's coming out November 15th. Um, what is it about organizing these interviews and putting them together with some sort of narrative that differentiates your traditional biography narrative
3: well i uh first of all i do consider it a biography it's a form of uh, a form of biography okay um i i, I think it's uh, th- there's two things that that make it different first of all it is um i i guess actually three things that make it different first of all at the core of it are the artist's uh, words and ideas um, uh, first person? You know, in in real time. So we go from the late seventies to the mid twenty uh, tens here. So we we get what the artist is thinking about the world and about himself. Yeah. Um, the 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 second interesting thing, uh, sort of the next layer, is the uh, with the interviewers and how the interviewer's relationship with him changes over time. Um, from sort of uh, in, in an incredulous, uh, who does this guy think he is? To oh yeah, we know who he is. To maybe we'll never know who <laughs> knew knows who he actually is. So we get to see that that trajectory too, sort of his, the perceptions of him in the the spotlight. Um, and then actually the that that next layer is me choosing and sort of guiding guiding the narrative and picking out um sort of critical points in his career yeah um so it's a it's a sort of a different layering of uh of of biography than one might usually uh, get
2: yeah absolutely um and i'm gonna kind of circle i'm gonna just kind of weave this through and ask some questions about some specific songs like we've kind of agreed to do which i love because i'm hoping that you can give me some of this uh some of this insight um as i'm reading through the book a song will come up and i'll put the i'll put it down for a moment and i'll go on to spotify or whatever and i'll listen to the song just to kind of contextualize and so one of the first ones that comes up is controversy controversy the opening bits of this song, probably the first 20 to 30 seconds, I, I hear the talking heads. That's just what I hear. I think that Prince is uniquely, uh, he's such a unique songwriter and just the sounds that he creates are so uniquely Prince. But I just, for the first time kind of listening to him, heard an influence from somewhere else. And he mentions that this song's beginnings were <clears throat> um, by him playing drums initially and coming up with the drum track first. And I'm wondering if there's anything else you could kind of tell us about this song.
3: Well, I, I guess, uh, musically, I don't necessarily have a lot to say about it, but I, I certainly hear talking heads and I hear, um, I hear some, some Bowie in there and, uh, stuff that he sort of almost came around to later, sort of craft work type stuff. There's definitely that, uh, there, there's a, the, the, there's the on-the-one funk, but there's also a, a, a different type of feel to the whole the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, as with a lot of his songs, it, musically, it does sort of come out from just simply sitting down and jamming, uh, even if it's on his own, and then uh, coming up with, with ideas. Uh, lyrically, I think it's pretty interesting because it's uh, one of the first times when he starts to comment upon... Uh, upon himself and we sort of build up to this point in the uh in the book where uh people are saying all these different things about him and he's saying different things about himself some of them true yeah. some of them false um and he sort of brings that all together in in controversy where he's um commenting on the the world at large but also commenting on what people are thinking about uh, about him um and uh, slightly capitalizing on on all of that at the same time uh just uh and then and then mixing in uh the Lord's prayer at the end you know sort yeah, of, yeah. As, a, as a total curveball
2: <laughs> <laughs> so do you think from the research that you put together to put this to put this book out do you think he's intentionally elusive as an interview subject or do you think that that's just his personality I think
3: it is at some point it, it it is initially his personality and it evolves into part of his persona. Um, okay. and, and as I say, he, uh, because he will strategically come out of the shell, um, especially later on, sort of when he needs to correct the narrative or to sell something, yeah. <laughs> um, he will, uh, he'll, he'll open up a bit, but he's very selective about what he, what he opens up about. Um, we you know this is a song facts but really he doesn't talk about his songs very much no um, he doesn't he, he prefers to shy away from the the creative process and and lets uh, typically lets the songs uh speak for themselves which i which i uh, which is a little bit frustrating in uh uh, reading interviews, but at the same time, I respect that so much uh, in, in an artist to simply let their let their work speak for itself because that's why you ideally create things uh, and let the audience uh, explore them and figure
2: them out in, in their own ways. I think it's um, one of the things that we've discovered by doing this show and me talking to so many different artists is that the way that they a lot of them perceive it is it's mine as I'm creating it. And as soon as it's done and it's out, then it takes on a life of its own. And it kind of makes the job that I'm doing tricky. If someone's really going to take a hard stance on that, I, like I find mm-hmm. the way that Prince talks about his songs to be kind of Dylan esque of like, no, you just, you take it for what you want it to be. Like I, I had this moment in time and now I'm past it. And, and I think that's one thing that really stood out to me is that as soon as he's done with something, he closes that chapter and, and, immediately moves on and, and really doesn't like to look back and even talk about it and i find that very unique about him
3: yeah he uh he he, he does uh he, he does do that he does let i one of the things i did um really get from this is even uh, more of an appreciation that he has for the fans and uh letting the the fans um well, I, I say that. <laughs> maybe not one hundred percent true. There's some internet issues that <laughs> that happen to the fans, but in terms of the uh, of the music itself, uh, he doesn't try to control uh, control what it means, but he does put it out there and let the fans um, uh, make meaning as they as they will. At the same time, he he has never been a fan, or he never was a fan of other artists covering his music. Mm. Um, there's always, uh, you know, I, I guess the the big battle there was with uh, Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl and uh, them doing a cover of Darling Nikki. And he wasn't very happy, uh, happy about that. And his uh, performance at the 2007 Super Bowl of Foo Fighters Best of You was sort of his uh, showing them up and him taking one of their songs for him, uh, for them taking one of his songs. So. So he he uh, he is at once protective and also um, and also uh, generous, I guess, with his with his music. So sort of.
2: okay. so this is interesting to me because this is new for me. I did not know about this thing with the Foo Fighters in this cover Mm -hmm. and especially the Super Bowl, because I think his Super Bowl performance is completely like if you look it up online, it just takes you to that performance of Purple Rain while it's raining. And yep. just this this amazing guitar solo and everything that went on that at that time. But there's this underlying underlying narrative that it sounds like um, any more that you can give us on that. That's that's fascinating to me.
3: Yeah, I, I think the, the whole Super Bowl thing is is fascinating. He started off the week uh, he had to do a press conference, uh, which is what the artists are always expected to do. Um, and so he got up. And uh, basically said one word, and then he uh, did a couple songs. So his press conference was that same thing, letting the music do the talking rather yeah. than uh, going up there and explaining things. Um, but uh, the actual performance itself, as you said, in the in the rain, um, just the magnificent uh, magnificent stage setup. The you know him being on on the cymbal, the uh, the marching band there um so he he was able to uh he was able to show off all his chops yeah there and um uh and you said you mentioned dylan before and obviously his his way to um all along the watchtowers more through hendrix but he was also sort of able to pay that uh home state nod to uh to dylan and perform that uh there at the same
2: time so uh along with that uh along with best of you so yeah just, what a what an amazing thing to i'll have to try and look up that a little bit more because that's um i don't remember hearing his version of best of you so that's that's really at the it's forefront a, it's of not my the head. whole thing it's a it's in a medley so yeah okay well that's perfect um yeah. well you mentioned this about the covers thing which is really a nice segue into what i have up next because i want to talk about nothing compares to you oh, oh. Um, as kind of made most famous by Sinead O'Connor and more than likely her performance of it on Saturday Night Live. Um, some people may not know that it was written by Prince, but it was. And I'm wondering if you can tell us how this track went from his pen and paper to being made famous by Miss O'Connor. Sure.
3: Um, and there's actually uh, new stuff on that this uh, this past week. So. Oh, wow. Um It actually started out as a um, uh, one of the reasons Prince didn't release it early on. uh, It is actually a song for the family. Uh, The family was uh, one of his uh, offshoot bands Mm. in the uh, uh, say 86, 87, somewhere, somewhere around there. And it actually appears on the family's one one album, which was uh, family was members of the of the revolution and madhouse and uh, various bands that he had going on at, at that time. Yeah. Um, so it, it was on there. It wasn't a, a major hit at that time, but it did get some, some airplay. Um, uh, then Sinead O'Connor, uh, used it, uh, and it, uh, became wildly, uh, wildly popular. Um, and then, uh, he, didn't end up using it himself. I mean, he he, you know, made some nice change off it, um, uh, but seemed to always sort of resent the uh, the uh, the fact that she had that uh, the huge hit with it um, when he uh, when he came out with his uh, first uh, greatest hits collection, he put a uh, live studio version of it on there mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with uh, Rosie Gaines. So that's uh, which I prefer that version. Um, and then he, uh, after he died, uh, one of one, I don't know if it's exactly his original demo, but one of his original versions of it, uh, was released on the uh, originals album, which is, a an album of, uh, songs that other artists covered that, uh, you know, his, his demo or original versions. Um, then this past week, uh, a Sinead O'Connor, um, documentary came out. And the Prince Estate refused uh, them permission to use the song, and that becomes part of the narrative in the documentary itself that the Prince Estate is still sort of at war with Sinead O'Con- O'Connor over the uh, uh, sort of o- over the success and how she sh- she treated
2: Prince over the years. So, <laughs> did she get the rights to do the recording initially, or did she just do it and put it out? Um, well, she—I did I mean, she had to go through
3: regular, uh, regular copyright. Yeah, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the exact procedure, but he had—he uh, just, you know, people were free to cover his song, so he or someone in his estate at that, or someone working for him at that time, signed off on it. So it was. Uh, it or it was made available
2: so he, yeah that's interesting that the the estate is still kind of taking the stance that it seems like he might have were he still alive like they're they're really like dialed in on his personality and the way he might have reacted towards things and i find that to be interesting because he's such a unique personality that it would be kind of hard to mimic that
3: yeah the the estate um the 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 estate i think typically tries to go by what they think he would have done um but it's also uh, I, I don't necessarily know if he would have approved of all of these uh all the releases that have come out of uh, demos and outtakes and all that type of thing
2: um but i'm glad they i'm i'm glad the stuff's coming out <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, even that kind of conflict will just makes a um, a documentary like that just kind of unique in a way that they might not have been able to predict when they first started the project. So, I think that they're probably like almost like. Well, we kind of got to be grateful for this in the end, even though this is a battle that we didn't expect or want. <laughs> right,
3: right. It's okay. You know, if if you want to hear the song, you can find it easily enough. It doesn't yeah. need to be here, <laughs> and we get this, uh, you know, interest generated. So yeah, I guess it's it's a win win. Yes, absolutely.
2: Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this.
0: That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime?
2: Okay, well, well, we're here with Dr. Arthur Lizzie. Prince on Prince interviews and encounters is coming out November 15th. Um, I want to jump into another song right away here. Most beautiful girl in the world. I think a lot of people are very familiar with this one um what can you tell us about the making of this tune um it it comes at uh
3: an odd uh an, an odd time uh he really at, at this time um a, a paint, painted a little bit broadly because I'm, I'm not going to get into the weeds about the uh, battles with warner brothers and if he's on the <laughs> label at this time or not but um it i, I think it's most most interesting in that it comes out as a uh, as an independent single um so uh it's his first number 1 in England so it becomes this uh this huge smash and it's him showing that he can um you know on his own he doesn't need Warner brothers he doesn't need this major label support he can go out there and find the resources has the song uh, ready to go and he's uh he's able to be hugely successful uh, on what is it's like a catchy song, but I think in, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't put it amongst his, his best songs, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it, it, you know, obviously very memorable, very catchy. What year um, are we talking about? Uh, 94. I th- okay. I think, I think I have the, the exact year correct there. Um, so spring 94, I think it may have actually come, it came out sometime around Valentine's day, I I think. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah, so I did not realize that that was his first number one hit in England. There was a blurb in the book that had talked about, I think, was it in the mid 80s where he was doing, um, he was kind of touring Japan and Australia and he was getting pushback for not, what was it? He's always kind of had this thing where people had this expectation that he was going to play to more African American audiences and maybe that was the pushback that he was getting at that time
3: yeah well some of the um uh, some of the pushback that he got i think it started somewhat in during the 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 purple rain era and it moved on uh after that uh especially some of the band members actually were, were complaining that he was he was catering to white audiences and then as you said he um from from love sexy so from about I want to say 1988 to 1993. Uh, he didn't tour the United States at all. He was playing mm. in Japan. And he's playing in Europe. So primarily playing to, uh, playing to white audiences. So there was some of this perception that he had gotten away from, uh, from his, his roots, I guess is what, yeah. it, what it comes down to. Um, and, uh, I, I it, I mean, it was frustrating for me because that's when I really wanted to see him. So I wasn't able to see him <laughs> during all that time <laughs> um, until he came back around on the um, the symbol tour in 1993. Um, but there there's uh, in in the book there. That's sort of one of the undercurrents there is his relationship with his uh, black audiences and with the with the black press. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from from early on, there's almost this uh, this idea that he's uh, the term selling out never, never comes up. I don't think it was that he was selling out, but that he was um, he had his eye uh, more on mainstream rather than sort of having the back of, uh, of of
2: black audiences and his black fans. So the focus would become possibly on selling more records than it would be about just producing the best, most authentic music to himself as possible. Um, I don't even know if it's, it's,
3: uh, in, in the, uh, in, in the music that people were having the, the, these issues. Um, but just with his, uh, sort of his, his relationship or not, not engaging with the audiences quite, quite as much.
2: Gotcha. Okay.
3: Um, we have, um, In the book, early on, he has the, um, you know, you say you hear the talking heads, and I don't think that's, um, uh, you know, I don't think he was necessarily trying to sound like the talking heads, but it's not that he wasn't listening to maybe to some new wave music at that time. And there was a conscious decision um, around that time, maybe a little bit earlier to try to appeal to uh, new wave and punk audiences, so white audiences. Um, and that's around the time here around, uh, you know, I'm just South of Boston and WBCN was the big, uh, the, the big white station, the big, uh, sort of what we now might call alternative music, but they yeah. play, play different things. They weren't just playing the, uh, the, the top 40 or even the, um, uh, the mainstream, uh, album oriented rock. Uh, but they started putting, uh, Prince in their uh in their rotation which was unusual to have a a black artist in the rotation so uh that doesn't come about with some without some type of uh promotion from the label to try to consciously go after those those different audiences
2: yeah yeah that makes sense um okay so this has been something that i guess i found really interesting as i was reading through especially the first part of the book um so it seems like during his rise to superstardom prince would have these gaps and sometimes even multiple years where he wouldn't speak with the press at all um and i'm wondering if this makes him it's kind of two questions like for the style of book that you're writing there's these massive gaps that would most artists potentially wouldn't have especially at like like, when he released Purple Rain, nothing. Um, at least that, that is in the book. And and I'm just curious, is that, one, is that make your job that much more difficult to try and find excerpts from other interviews maybe down the road that look back on that time? And then, two, is it make him more or less of an interesting subject? Um. Yeah, the first, first part, it does
3: greatly complicate the, uh, the 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 process um well i guess it 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 complicates it, it actually makes the process easier because there's only a handful of things to choose from um but it makes the storytelling process a little bit more uh more difficult uh to only have a handful of of choices there um
2: and, now I totally spaced. What the the second part of the question was whether or not it can, that 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 fact that he's got oh, these gaps it makes him more or less of an interesting subject.
3: Yeah, well, I I think it makes him uh, more more of an interesting subject uh, because um, just the the there's the allure of mystery. There's just mystery there. If he's not saying uh, what's happening, then what what is actually happening? Uh, yeah. We don't necessarily. No, actually, we, we 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 come to find out that basically what he was doing during that time was working uh, and mm. he didn't have time to or didn't have the time or interest to do other things other than work. Yeah. And so that's that's what he's doing He's either in the, the studio or on the road or sometimes both at the, the same time. Yeah, um, this I'll say this isn't unprecedented. The, uh, this is my second book in this interviews and encounters series. First one is Neil Young, and uh, he did the same thing uh, for even longer period of time, where from um, about 73 to early 80s. He also it was just a handful of interviews. He hmm. um, he uh, he went off the grid also um, and uh, they both did it for some some similar reasons. Um they uh they both experienced levels of stardom and success that uh you know that would be hard to deal with. And I yeah. guess one of the ways to deal with is to simply shut off those areas of your life that you can't control. Um, and an interview is something that you can't necessarily control. Um yeah. you are, you know, you're at at the behest of the the interviewer, and then after that, you're at the behest of um, how it's, uh, how it's written up and then how it's contextualized. So one of the ways you can gain some control is to simply stop playing the game. And both of them do that for, for quite a re-
2: while in response to just crazy success. Yeah. I'm, I, my brain immediately jumps to this idea of promotion. There's a, I think there's a well-known kind of quote within the film industry that, actors are paid to promote not necessarily to act because that's a chunk in time you spend three months making the movie then it goes off to editing that maybe takes six months to a year or however long and then upon the release then they go and do these huge press junkets world tours if it's a big enough movie and like that's where it gets exhausting repetitive so they're paid to promote um I'm wondering, and then I think the other side of that is another way to promote things is to create this mystery and this mystique Mm -hmm. around it and not necessarily promote it. And it's interesting to look back at someone like Prince and be like, you had maybe your most massive rise to stardom while you were no longer doing any promotion. And I wonder if that was correlated with the mystique or if he would have been even bigger had he been out there promoting I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that.
3: Um I
2: I don't think he would
3: have been been bigger. I mean I I think he was about as big as you could you could get for sure at, at that time. Uh maybe his uh his success would have been prolonged in in some different ways. Maybe not have uh, ebbed or flowed as much that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but but in in general Uh he also he just took that stance where what I'm gonna be promoting, um, again, I don't I don't need to talk about this stuff. I'm just gonna do it. So he, you know, during the Purple Rain tour, uh he releases another album. And then we get another album on the heels of that, another album, then double album, and so um again, he was he was interested in working and he was interested in in talking to people through his music. So um, so the, 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 the mystique, I, I, there's the mystique of not talking to, uh, to, uh, interviewers, but also he was trying to just simply talk directly to the fans Yeah, um, with his music.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, I, one of the things that I think, even if you're just before me going in and, and reading this book, I, you know, I'd consider myself a surface level Fan and also just like my knowledge of Prince was very surface level. Like I just kind mm-hmm. of got got these tidbits of memory, like Chappelle's yeah. Show, the stuff on Chappelle's Show is part of it yeah. for me. And um, and I'm wondering if he in the mid eighties, he's up there with Madonna, Michael Jackson. He's in that stratosphere by like nineteen ninety or so. He's no longer that. He kind of resurfaces a bit by coming out and changing his name to a symbol. Um, I think I was probably ten or eleven when that happened, and I have a vivid memory of seeing that on mm-hmm. MTV, and that was massive news. And I'm just curious if you think that his um his career arc was was just kind of based on this persona where he just I, th- I find it really unique that he was so high and had such a long career, but it didn't stay there all the time, like a lot of these bi- major artists do. I I guess I would in general say
3: feel free to push back on that too. <laughs> well, I guess I would broad make it into trouble for this, but I would broadly say that his um the, the moments where he's successful or sort of in the spotlight the most are the moments when uh, he's producing the best music or at least releasing the best music. I won't yeah. even say when he's releasing the best music. So I think there's a definite correlation there. Um, if we talk about him sort of wearing out his, his welcome. Um, I think that hits that the, the first time that hits is with uh graffiti bridge where he had produced a string of, you know, like seven or eight years of some of the best albums ever ever created. Um, and then he produced Graffiti Bridge, which is sort of a mishmash of stuff that's great and stuff that I never really need to hear again. Um, and that really started to put people off because at that same time he was doing that, he was saying, OK, I don't I'm putting words in his mouth here. But what I feel is that um, I don't need to go in and, and tour. I'm not going to tour on this. Instead, I'm gonna put a movie and people can just go see me in the movie and that'll be you know that they'll be happy with that. Yeah. Um but I know I tried to go see the movie when it came out and it wasn't playing around me. <laughs> it wasn't playing other <laughs> places. So I, I, I think just not have uh that sort of dropped him off a bit and he had to re um he had to rethink what, what he was doing. Uh he pivots a bit at that point toward uh toward rap and uh hip hop and that that type of stuff and uh makes a, a string of really really good albums at that point he's mm-hmm. back in the spotlight he starts touring again um and then he pops up uh you know he's consistently producing quality material till about 2010 um uh and the and the times that he pops up there are i think the times he's doing the best stuff uh musicology in 2004 yeah um, uh, 3121 in 2007 and he he tours with that so and then uh after that he produces a lot of good music but he sort of keeps his profile high by uh by by touring because that and in that point of the industry that's where the money is also is yep. not releasing things that people are gonna at that point steal anyway but stream you know yeah 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 or you know Napster, or what you know, all that type of stuff, or yep. earlier on. Um, uh, and the money, you know, the money's at uh, at touring, and he's, you know,
2: he was great at that. So yeah, able to do that. Uh, the the one thing that I can kind of personally touch on, and I have no idea if this is true, and I thought I would just ask you. I I, I mentioned that I spent, uh, I grew up a little bit outside of Minneapolis and Saint Paul. Mm -hmm. and i worked for a while as a caddy at a golf course called north oaks which is like a northern suburb Mm -hmm. and i was told at the time that prince came in and bought a big estate there a big house and wanted to just paint the entire thing this really his his staple purple Mm -hmm. and uh and just completely redevelop the land and, and just make it so prince and all of the like um these his neighbors and people within this community said no and i'm just wondering if you ever heard that story and if there's any truth to that because i never fact checked that one (laughs) um i mean
3: he had a number of places around minneapolis that uh, including one that was the purple house the the quote-unquote purple house um which is not at paisley park it was some somewhere else uh he had a number of other places he recorded and stayed in the area um it's it it, it's quite possible he owned a a lot of land in that (laughs) in in that area uh in addition to 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 paisley park
2: yeah i will say that i think it's really impressive for someone who got to be in their like early to mid-20s and was like i don't know why i'm still in the midwest these winters are awful and the the amazing summers that they have for me anyway didn't balance it out um and got out of there i'm really impressed that he just never lost his roots with that. That's uh, that's something that's really impressive to me because I don't think when you think of Minnesota, you don't think of Prince necessarily in that kind of huge persona.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things, one of his famous lines is that, uh, you know, he, he stayed there because the weather keeps the bad people out.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, but yeah, no, he's, he, um, Uh, it it was his home and he felt felt at home there he uh lived in la for a while um you know and lived in toronto for a little bit and you know periodically lived in spain and other other places sort of Mm -hmm. second and third and fourth houses um but he always felt uh comfortable there um i think he wasn't uh
2: eating you know the, the weather didn't bother him just put on a, a big parka and uh you're all set <laughs> yeah i mean if you go out and like try and for someone as as famous as he is if you're trying to just go out and have a dinner or go out to a club or something like that in january february or minnesota there's very few paparazzi that are going to brave that cold so yeah yeah probably a, probably a big part of it that makes a lot of sense um okay i've got one more question you had okay. sent um a, a, a list of songs and then i kind of said why don't you pick a couple of these and one of them was this lovely ballad that I hadn't heard before, Bet You By Golly
1: Wild. Wow. Candy each time
0: you smile.
2: What can you tell us about Prince in terms of a, of a writer of love songs and ballads that, uh, that the song I think really touches on this kind of came out in the mid nineties.
3: Yeah. Well, th- um, that song, I put it on that song's actually a cover of a stylistic song. So, oh, okay. it's, uh, so in, uh, in uh, 1996, he releases emancipation, which is his three album, uh, three hour, three album, uh, collection where he uh he, he's finally free of of warner brothers and is doing uh what he wants how he wants hmm. uh, it also marks the first time on uh on record at least that he's uh releasing covers so i i, I think uh his choice of that is uh is interesting he said it's a beautiful uh a beautiful song and gives you a little bit of insight into um his thinking on uh on on his ballads his more more love ballads as opposed to the uh uh you know slow jam uh slow jam ballads uh uh do me baby and stuff like that it's a you know different direction a love song um and i i just think it's uh uh, I, I just think it's an an interesting uh, choice that he made at that time. And um, I wish he had been doing some covers earlier also,
2: I guess is what. Was he prevented from doing that or did he just want to put out original material? Was Warner Brothers involved in that? Do you know? Um, he just wanted to put out
3: um, original material up, up to that point. Um, there are probably some issues um, with. Um, mechanical rights and copyright and how much money he'd make writing a song and having a played, as opposed to covering. So there's probably some of those considerations also, uh, but emancipation gave him the, uh, the freedom to do what he wanted. And I think he decided
2: he wasn't going to care about those, uh, those, those money issues in that way. Yeah, <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, you know i'm probably about three quarters of the way through i'm absolutely loving it i can't wait to finish it over this coming weekend and um and i just wanted to say thank you for putting it together for uh, everyone listening prince on prince interviews and encounters and it's coming out november 15th to the masses thank you so much arthur lizzie i really appreciate you and your time all right thank you it's been fun Thank you so much to Dr. Lizzie for coming on and chatting with us all things Prince. What an amazing artist, an amazing human. May he rest in peace. Please go check out Dr. Lizzie's book, Prince on Prince, Interviews and Encounters, on November 15th. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thank you.
1: What Would you do to achieve the American dream—the big house, the happy family, the money? 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> my mom is dead. My mom right there. From airship